Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. It's my first episode of the new year, and after giving you all a sunny outlook for 2022 in my last episode of 2021, it's almost as though maybe I was tempting fate, because for me anyways, the new year is not off to, well, the best of starts. After managing to keep the unwanted house guest out for just about two years, COVID, unfortunately, finally got past our best defenses and barged in this past week. First my wife, and then me and my son have all come down with it, and while I knew that with this Omicron variant it was really a matter of when and not if, it hasn't really made the experience any better. My wife Sandra did pretty well, with no more than just a bad cold, and while I at first seemed to be getting off pretty easily with just kind of mild symptoms, the last three days have been pretty awful. Terrible muscle aches and pains, cough and congestion, and fatigue have all been pretty bad, but I'm thankful to be vaccinated and boosted because clearly it could obviously be a whole lot worse. But this is a good time to remind myself and any of you who might be going through the same thing of a couple of episodes that I did back in the last couple of years on COVID-related side effects that are pertinent to endurance sport training, specifically coming back to endurance sport training after you've been infected. If you or someone you know gets diagnosed with COVID, you may wish to revisit episode 49, when I discussed the phenomenon of post-COVID myocarditis, and episode 57, when I talked about long COVID. The high-level overview of those episodes, and especially as it pertains to myocarditis, is to really be careful with getting back to your training. COVID is a wily virus and is known to affect almost all organ systems in the body, and its impacts on the heart are particularly dangerous if undetected. When returning to training after a COVID infection, it's important to go slowly and pay close attention to any unexpected shortness of breath, chest pains, palpitations, or lightheadedness, all of which could signify some degree of COVID effect on the heart muscle. For most people who've been vaccinated, it's very unlikely that they will have any issues, but it isn't impossible. So it's best to be gentle with returning to training, and if there's any question whatsoever, to consult with your physician. I know that for me, I'm happy that this happened to me in early January when I was really just getting going with my training again, so taking some time to ramp back up and be careful about it is really, honestly, a pretty easy decision. This is why I always end my show with the tagline of train hard, train healthy, because it really is all about striking that very important balance. On the show today, I'm going to tackle a subject that comes up every year right about this time. Specifically, that subject is New Year's resolutions. The New Year is a time when many people decide to make such resolutions in an effort to change something about themselves or their lives, all towards some kind of self-improvement. But, and I know this isn't going to be much of a surprise to anyone, they are almost unfortunately never successful. One of the most popular resolutions tends to be around weight loss, but new research suggests that we might be going about this all in the wrong way. Efforts at weight loss, you see, are almost always unsuccessful, or if at first successful, tend to be unsustainable. And researchers have begun to believe that rather than emphasizing dropping weight, people who are overweight should instead turn their attention to becoming active and getting fit. I'm going to look at this question and what the research shows and what it means for people who have struggled with being overweight, and that's going to be coming up shortly. 
Later on, I am thrilled to bring you a conversation that I had with one of the true legends of triathlon. Bob Babbitt has been around triathlon pretty much as long as triathlon has been around. Among his myriad accomplishments are completing the Hawaii Ironman long before it was the race that it has become today, the development of the Challenged Athletes Foundation, and the production of the ever-popular Breakfast with Bob podcast series. Well, he regaled me with a number of fantastic stories, and I look forward to sharing them all with you, and that's coming up in a short while. Before we get to that, though, I do want to take a moment to remind you about the opportunity to become a supporter of this podcast through my Patreon website. For about the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can sign up to get access to all kinds of bonus content that is only available to my Patreon supporters. This includes bonus interviews with Simon Marshall, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, Dan Emfield, uh, just to name a few, along with video talks by me on the science of tapering and off-season health and wellness. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to all of that right now. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thank you so much in advance just for considering. This is my first medical segment of 2022. So I think that it's still fair game, even though we are just about two weeks in, to tackle a subject that comes up each and every year, and that is the subject of New Year's resolutions. And here, I'm speaking about one perpetually popular resolution in particular. I'm guessing that it will come as no surprise that one of the most common resolutions made in the Western world by adults everywhere across genders is the promise to try and lose weight on New Year's. And if you are one of those people who have made such a resolution in the past, it will likely also come as no surprise that this resolution is rarely, unfortunately, ever successful. It's particularly unfortunate since we know that as a society, we're continuing to see basically bigger and bigger people. Since 1980, obesity rates have doubled in more than 70 countries, with a threefold increase in the United States to more than 42% in 2018. Now, obesity in this case is defined by body mass index or BMI, and there's no question BMI is an imperfect measure, but it's what we have to work with, and so I'm going to leave it at that and not spend a whole lot of time talking about BMI and whether or not we should be using it. So let's just move on from there. At any rate, in that same time frame since 1980, there has been a similar increase in weight loss attempts, with just under half of all Americans saying that they tried to lose weight in the previous 12 months. This means that despite the intense focus on weight loss, obesity rates have continued to rise unabated meaning that weight loss efforts are clearly being very unsuccessful. Now, given the seeming futility of trying to lose weight, researchers have begun to question if there isn't a better way to approach treating obesity, where instead of focusing on weight loss, the goal should be instead on lifestyle changes that could result in improved quality of life and lower rates of disease that are so often associated with being overweight. Well, a recent review article by Glenn Gasser and Siddhartha Angadi sought to answer this question, looking specifically at the impact that being physically active can have on disease and mortality rates in people who are overweight or obese. In their review, Gasser and Siddhartha found abundant evidence that, in fact, being active was associated with significant benefits to health and well-being for those who are both obese 
those who are overweight, and even those who are normal weight. However, the benefits to those who are overweight were really dramatic. They reported on several large studies that have demonstrated that among those who are overweight or obese, being active and improving physical fitness can reduce the rates of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality almost to rates seen in normal weight people who are physically fit. Now, I spoke with David Gasser late last year when I was preparing an article for a triathlete magazine, and I want to include some brief excerpts from our conversation because I think they're really important and relevant to this conversation. So here's one uh, brief excerpt on this very point about how physical fitness can reduce the rates of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality, almost to the same rates as those who are in normal weight. Okay, so first of all... uh let me say that when we reviewed the literature for this paper, so we're looking at um, mostly observational studies uh, in which various uh, behavioral and physical characteristics are assessed at baseline, and the uh, participants are followed up over a number of years. And it turns out that uh, baseline cardiorespiratory fitness is very important. It's a very, very powerful predictor of health outcomes. And changing fitness level or increasing physical activity are also very powerful predictors of health outcomes. So that's where we're coming from. And these are on studies, observational studies that typically have tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people in them. So this is a really important point. As you heard uh, Dr. Gasser say, looking at very large studies, hundreds of thousands of people sometimes, People who are overweight but have significant levels of fitness actually do really well. And this is really important given the reality that weight loss itself is so difficult. Most people who undertake weight loss regimens fail. Or worse, when they are successful, they're simply unable to sustain it. And they end up putting back the weight that they lose in pretty short order. And this weight cycling has been shown to be associated with significant health risks. And it's primarily for this reason that gay and others in the field feel that by emphasizing fitness instead of emphasizing weight loss, better health can be achieved by those who are overweight, with that then naturally leading to improved diet and eventually more sustainable weight loss. Again, from my interview with David Gasser, he eloquently speaks to this point. What to do about it? It's like, well, we've been on this diet roller coaster collectively, and a lot of us very personally on this diet roller coaster and it hasn't seemed to work. So, you know, from an exercise physiologist perspective, we asked this question, what would happen if someone just focused on their fitness? And it appears to be a lot can happen. And if someone read the article very carefully, we do say that we're not really against weight loss. We, we're not basically saying you should not try to lose weight. We're just saying, uh, be cautious about what you wish for. Because most people who go into a weight loss program won't lose as much as they would like to lose. And they rarely will keep it off, even what they do lose. And so they go into this you know, cycle over and over again. And we would like to just basically circumvent, circumvent that. And a person can have a weight loss goal, but we would like to have them first have a fitness or physical activity goal and keep that as the most important prize. And the weight loss would be something that's secondary to that. Now, Gasser and other researchers like him 
don't want to diminish the adverse health effects associated with being overweight, but he does take pains to note that in study after study, losing weight is not always associated with improvements in markers of poor health, whereas improving physical fitness is. As he told me, quote, physical activity likely has its own intrinsic benefits regardless of weight and whether or not you lose it, end quote. Despite this, Gasser acknowledges that there are health risks associated with being overweight, and while he believes that weight loss should be de-emphasized, it shouldn't be eliminated as a goal altogether. Another research paper on this subject was published back in 2011 by researchers by the name of Bacon and Aframore. That paper made similar observations, that weight loss is almost always futile, that weight cycling is dangerous, and that the benefits of being active are far more important than losing weight in the grand scheme of things. This study, though, went one step further and advocated for the notion of health at every size, making the point that it is far more important to be healthy, no matter your size, than to try and actually change your size. And this is where things get a little complicated. Bacon and Aframore make the point that while being overweight has definitely been shown to be associated with adverse health outcomes, proving causality, that is to say that being overweight actually causes those outcomes, hasn't always been so easy to establish. And they go on to suggest that weight loss should not be forgotten about altogether. Sorry, that they go on to say that weight loss should be forgotten about altogether, and that an active lifestyle is really all that matters, no matter an individual size. But David Gasser made a point to call this out as problematic when we spoke, as he said in our interview. I worry about it from this perspective, and uh, one of the other, um, uh, I think, phrases out there is the health at every size movement. Uh, that's another one. But yes, the fit but fat, uh, the only thing I worry about is that, and I've seen this, I mean, it's not that I worry about it uh, because I, it's some abstract. I've seen this, that uh, some people have uh, basically interpreted my message as fat is fit. In other words, fat is basically what people should be aspiring to. I mean, it's totally opposite of the message. What I'm saying is that it is perfectly possible for a fat person by whatever definition you want to use, a body fat percentage, total body fat, BMI, what have you. It's perfectly possible for a person like that, an obese person, BMI over 30, to be fit. And by fit, I mean, and physically active and, and fit enough to enjoy a low risk associated with that fitness. Those can coexist together. Uh, but the critical thing is that you cannot have fitness without the activity. Look, as a person who is formerly very much overweight and who struggled for years to get to a body weight that I am now finally happy with, I know firsthand how difficult weight loss is and how hard it is to sustain. It takes a huge effort to change your lifestyle to one that promotes healthy eating and other behaviors that are conducive to weight loss, especially when there are likely so many things working against you in terms of life stresses and societal influences that just make it difficult to adhere to your best intentions. So rather than making a resolution to lose weight, one that is fraught with difficulty and the very likely prospect of disappointment and failure, I really love this idea of resolving to simply be more active and make a move to embracing a life of fitness and activity. And what better way to do that than to get into multi-sport? 
That doesn't have to mean an Ironman or even a 70.3. It can simply mean a sprint or even an Olympic distance event. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Triathletes have a reputation for being fit and fast. There's no way that I belong with these lean people. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. The reality of our sport is that it is incredibly inclusive. And one of the things that makes it so welcoming is that there's really no one body type or shape that is required in order to compete or complete a multi-sport event. Those of us who've been around for a while will tell you that when you look around at any race, you will see people of all shapes and sizes displaying the same nerves, enthusiasm, and excitement about what they're about to undertake. This inclusiveness is not only a result of triathlon's embrace of every man and woman who wants to tow a start line, but it's also because many of those men and women came to the sport in an effort to find fitness and attain another goal, become healthier by losing weight. But getting moving was the very first step. For triathletes or anyone aspiring to be a triathlete, this should come as really welcome news. Focusing on the training and the goal of being active and as fit as possible is extremely beneficial to overall health and well-being. And de-emphasizing weight loss can take some of the stress and frustration out of the process for many. By making your primary goal one of fitness and the secondary goal of weight loss, if, in fact, that is something that you're actually interested in achieving, then it need not be as all-consuming and can follow much more naturally. We can all continue to be content, seeing all sizes and shapes of athletes at our events, knowing that they're all improving themselves by pursuing this common fitness goal. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. I'll be sure to give it a look over, get back to you personally, and let you know if I'm going to answer it on the program. It's a new year, and it's time to think about how you will get yourself trained to be your best for all your races in 2022. Have you ever wondered about doing a triathlon camp? Well, this April, LifeSport Coaching will be hosting a multi-sport camp in beautiful St. George, Utah. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson and with coaches Juliet Hockman and myself, the TriDoc, you can get yourself ready by spending some time with other athletes in a beautiful setting, learning from some of the best coaches around. Along with the various clinics and talks on multi-sport training and racing, the TriDoc will give talks on staying healthy and injury-free while training and racing at a high level. For more information, email the TriDoc or visit lifesportcoaching.com. My guest on the podcast today is yet another legend in the sport of triathlon, the one and only Bob Babbitt. Bob has been around triathlon pretty much as long as triathlon has been around Bob. And while both have aged incredibly well, neither really looks any worse for wear. It's impossible for me to give Bob the proper introduction that he so well deserves, but I will try to hit some of the highlights. He was there back in 1980 for the third ever Ironman event in Hawaii, and he went on to complete several more before Ironman was anything like what it is today. He's the co-founder of Competitive Group that now owns and runs, among many other publications, Triathlete Magazine, for which I am a medical contributor. He founded the Challenged Athletes Foundation that supports many athletes around the world in their efforts to compete to compete in our sport. He's an inductee to both the Ironman and USAT Halls of Fame and the man behind the very popular Breakfast with Bob series of interviews that comes from Kona every year. 
But I am really excited to say that he's here with me today to talk about all things triathlon from his many decades in the sport. Welcome, Bob, and thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc Podcast. Uh, Jeff, it's it's an honor. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, many decades. That's uh that's a, that's a little overwhelming when I hear that. I know, right? I, I myself have been in the sport for now going on over 20 years. And when I look back and see, gosh, you know, where I've been and, and you know, what I've accomplished, it's, uh, it, it's, it's amazing how fast the time goes by. And uh, it, from your perspective, I've had the great pleasure of talking to Dan Enfield, who also was around at the beginning oh, of yeah. the sport. And you know, hearing, hearing that perspective of how things have changed is always really fantastic. And I'm, I, I'm so glad that our sport really is within this generation. And so we still can talk to the people who were there right at the beginning. And it's really a fantastic uh, thing that we can take advantage of. So thank you again for being here. I want to begin really with that. And what can you tell us about the beginnings of the sport? I mean, you were there really at the, you know, I I love looking at those pictures of you back in San Diego, uh, taking on the San Diego challenge races. So so tell us what what are some of your fond memories from the, the early days of the sport? Well, this, I mean, sports started here in San Diego in 1974 with the San Diego Track Club. And, and really, triathlon was not really a sport. It was a workout. And all these guys were serious runners. And they started doing these events at Fiesta Island where they would do a on a, on a Tuesday, they do a swim, bike, run or swim, run, bike. And they just sort of mix it up. And it wasn't considered its own sport. And then in 74, they put on the first ever Mission Bay Triathlon. And and that was that's really sort of kicked things off. Uh, I didn't move out to San Diego until 78. So that's when I first was exposed to it. And with my roommate was a guy named Ned Overend, who went on to become world mountain bike champion. But back then, mountain bikes hadn't been invented yet. So he was a mechanic at San Diego Suzuki. And I was a school teacher. And we just we started going to local races. And then we read this article in Sports Illustrated in 1979 after a, a local bar owner named Tom Warren won the Ironman in 1979. And we read this eight-page article in Sports Illustrated. And you think about it, those 15 people in the race, 12 finishers, and they did eight pages in the Bible of sport, Sports Illustrated. That thing showed up every Thursday, and you read it cover to cover. We read this article, and we're like, oh, my God, this 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike ride, 26.2-mile run. And we you know, couldn't go online to figure out how to sign up for it or to find out information. So we did the next best thing. We tracked down Tom Warren, the guy who won the race and lived in San Diego. And he used to put on an event called the Tug Swim Run Swim, one of the original endurance events. You swam a half mile in the ocean and you ran five miles on the beach and then you swam half mile in the ocean again. And the key was, if you were a runner, is you wanted to run really hard that during that second part of the run, because otherwise the swimmers just swam right over your ass and just love dunking you because yeah. the swim, it was called swimmers revenge because most races finished in the run. And this was a rare opportunity for the swimmers to actually close it by pushing you down deep in the ocean and coming and coming in. In fact, when wetsuits first came into vogue and people could wear wetsuits in races, Tommy Warren was, was a purist. And people were like, well, I want to wear a wetsuit. He says, no problem. You can wear a wetsuit. When I shoot the gun, you can run over and put on your wetsuit. (laughs) (laughs) And once you put it on, you can't take it off. (laughs) It's got to be on for the run. (laughs) Yeah. 
So Tommy was one of those sort of eccentric guys. And when we first went to meet with him and we called him up and said, hey, Tommy, can you tell us about this Iron Man thing? He says, oh, sure, no problem. Come to my office. And I'm like, well, where's your office? Well, west side of the street, uh, just south of Crystal Pier in Pacific Beach. Like, oh, no problem. So we come over. There's no offices there. It's a parking lot. And then we see this motorhome with bikes in the back and running shoes tied around the side view mirrors and uh, and a paddleboard on top. And I sort of put my head inside and, so, and he goes, Babbitt, welcome to my office. And because he owned a bar, he had a there was a payphone behind him. So he would go and swim out in the ocean or paddleboard and run five miles every morning. Actually, he would run to a place called the jetty. It was like two and a half miles each way. And it was a white lamppost at the turnaround where he ran. And there's actually to this day, a black line around that pole from his hand. Every time he would do this run, probably did this run thousands of times over the years. And it was a series there's a black line from his hand making, you know, leaving greasy handprint around this pole. And, you know, so he was just, he was just, the other part about his swim, the swim, run, swim. It didn't finish at the finish. You know, you came across the finish line and that was great. But the key was to run another four blocks to his tavern because the first 75 people got breakfast and a tugs glass, right? So you came across the finish line, you got your popsicle stick with your number on it and just kept going. And <laughs> the key was you wanted to be standing there with your plate of runny eggs and your tugs glass in the top 75 when the 76th guy showed up and got nothing, right? That was that was a real bragging right. So then, you know, Tommy took us to this bar this is 9.30 in the morning. Took us to a bar right behind his office in a place called, his office, his motorhome, by a place called T.D. Hayes. And remember, he's the, our only link to figure out how to do this thing. And as he's explaining, you know, getting a bike and training, he's drinking beer and he's got a magic marker and he keeps making marks on his arm. And we're like, you know, oh, Mr. Warren, sir, what, what, what why are you using the magic marker? It's like, well, I have a little bit of a drinking problem. So I make a mark every time I have a beer. When I get to my sleeve, I go home. <laughs> then he had a he had his bike mounted in the sauna and he'd ride five hours a day in the sauna to get ready for this race in the heat. And why now nowadays that's a Lionel Sanders workout. But yeah. back then he was certifiably crazy. So he you know told us go get a bike. So we got bikes at a police auction and the first bike I got cost 75 bucks. The whole back end was burnt. Uh, I had fuzzy raccoon seat cover. Uh, um, it had, you know, it had uh, reflectors on it, had a kickstand. I put, because I thought we, we went for a ride one day and averaged like 10 miles an hour. So we're thinking 112 miles, we're going to be out there in the dark. So I'm going to go out and get Pannier's sleeping bag and tent because my guess is you swim to 1.4, ride 56, camp out, and ride back the next day and do the marathon. So that's what we, you know, that's what I had. I had Pannier's sleeping bag and tent on the bike, thought it was a two-day thing. He really had no clue. And, you know, then we 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 owned rock climbing helmets because actually we we did a rock climbing camp for kids. Ned and I did that. And rock climbing helmets have no holes. So when you go ride, it felt like your head was going to explode. It was like no ventilation whatsoever, which is one of the reasons we thought there's no way you could ride 112 miles in one day. 
this is gonna be a two day thing. So it was, it was a little bit of a learning thing. The funny part was when I rolled off in in the on Oahu, there was no bike boxes. You just rolled your bike on the plane and they shoved it in the cargo. So when my bike comes rolling off with the flat proof tires and the pannier sleeping bag of tent and, and foam grips and the fuzzy raccoon seat cover comes rolling off. And I've got this big beard that you've, you've seen. And Gordon Haller, who won in 78, had a big beard. So all these Navy SEALs who were racing in 1980 are looking at me, thinking I'm Gordon Haller, looking at this <laughs> bike and thinking this bike won the Ironman. And they're looking at it like you'd be looking at Lance Armstrong's bike. Oh, this why is he doing? Oh, there must be something aerodynamic. And then I had a fuzz, I also had a Radio Shack radio mounted on the handlebars so that I had tunes to listen to along the way. And it was, you know, and it was, did you was, do the race that way or did you oh, did. quickly realize oh, that? No, it's no, one no, day I'm going to get it. rid of some of this stuff. No, no. I had, I had beige hiking shorts and a only guy to do the Ironman with a leather belt and a belt and a long sleeve, a long sleeve cotton Jersey, Jersey uh, shirt. And um, I was number three in the race. And I was number three because I set my $25 in third, not like I was seated or anything from finishing third the year before. And when during the race itself, well, the day before the race, the race director calls us into this meeting. And now because of the piece in Sports Illustrated, things gone from 15 starters to 108 starters. You know, the event's booming. And he goes, uh, listen, guys, and we're, Ned and I are standing on the deck of the hotel and the waves are breaking against the building. We're talking 10 foot surf. That day, they, Dave Scott had been caught out in the surf for, you know, like he was going for a little swim and they were, you know, swept out to sea. And that guy's top swimmer. Yeah. So anyways, we're looking at the surf going, if we're swimming in Waikiki rough water swim tomorrow, we will die. There is no way. Because we did all of our swimming in 120 length to a mile pool. Had, you know, so we had no idea. We'd been in surf, but nothing like this. And they call us on the meeting and the race director goes, guys, uh, I'm in a predicament. I've got ABC Wild World of Sports. They just called me up and they're in town to shoot cliff diving on Sunday. And our event is on Saturday and they want to shoot our event. But if we have to cancel, postpone it today, which at this point we will, I'll lose ABC. So I'm moving the swim to Alamoana Champ, which is calm. And Ned and I obviously are pretty excited, but Dave Scott and all the Navy SEALs are like, what a pussy event. You can't move the swim. It's called the Ironman for a reason. And we're like, thank God we're going to live. And the next day we get out there and, you know, I'm, I'm swimming and it was four lengths. And there was a guy in the race named John Huckabee, the incredible Huck. His, his claim to fame, he'd run the Athens Marathon three times in one day. Right. He'd gone, you know, out, back out. The only problem is, and he's 59 years old. Back then, that was like ancient. And he's the only guy with sponsorship. He had like Acme Meats or something on the back of his <laughs> back of his jacket, the incredible huck. Well, he didn't know how to swim at all. Had never swam in his life. So as I'm swimming and staying as close to shore as possible, I almost I swim down, it was four lengths. On my way back, uh, my second length, I nearly run in the huck who's walking in the knee deep water, moving his head like this. Like, He's the only guy in history to get blisters on his feet during the swim portion of the Ironman Triathlon <laughs> World Championship. He walked all 2.4 miles and then they lost him. There's no cutoff times. They lost him in the middle of the night. 
they, they had no idea where he was at two in the morning. And they found him coming out of a diner in Waikiki at two, at two in the morning. And just because it was, you know, you would know, you would support crew. You, there was no aid stations, no roads were blocked off. And we had, we had to get off our bike as a science, as a medical guy, they had a rule that if you lost 5% of your body weight during the race, they pulled you out of the race. So they had scales. You had to get off your bike, I think three times during the bike. And then in the run, then they would weigh you to make sure you didn't lose too much weight. Where the science came from, I have no idea. So anyways, I get off the bike a few times. I'm wearing Jack Purcells. Nobody knew about bike shoes. Or Dave Scott actually had bike shoes and one of the cleats was messed up. So like in the movie Breaking Away, they duct taped his foot to the pedal for 112 miles, right? So they didn't get through the thing. <laughs> yeah. So we're, uh, I'm riding along and my crew at mile 25, and it was, I was a school teacher and one of the kids I taught, her dad lived over on the island. So he showed up in his Fiat convertible with his two girlfriends that morning. I gave him like 25 loaves of Hawaiian sweetbread and Gatorade because Again, science-wise, we had no idea nutrition, none of that stuff. We just we just thought, oh, carbs, we better have some carbs. We better have some sugar. So 25 miles in, my crew was standing on the side of the road, and I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I'm tuning in my radio, and I'm going to get a handoff like in the Tour de France. And they hand me a brown bag with a Big Mac fries and a Coke. And then at mile 90, I got a root beer snow cone, and then come in at the end of the bike, and there's my crew, and I come in. At Aloha Tower, and I see a bamboo mat set up. And I come in and they've got a boom box. And they're like, How about a massage? I'm like, you know what? I am so stiff. So I got a 45-minute massage between the bike and a run, which felt really, really good. <laughs> and then headed out on the run. As I'm heading out on the run, uh, there's, you know, they weigh us. And then I'm running through and waddling through Waikiki, eating Hawaiian sweetbread and drinking Gatorade. And about mile five, they weigh us again. And I think I could hear him on the walkie-talkie. They're like, oh, can you give me that again? He's gained five pounds. He can't gain weight doing this thing. And I could. And then we're running along, and we get to the last part of the race. You come up, uh, you, you come up Diamond Head. And then you drop into Kapiolani Park to finish the race. And my crew is behind me with their, in their Fiat with their headlights on me as I'm going up uh, Diamond Head. And I'm just thinking to myself, I thought I was going to take two days to do this. And I'm going to finish this in one day. And there's got to be, you know, there's got to be a band at the finish. There's got to be all sorts of excitement, cheerleaders. And as I drop into Kapiolani Park, all I see I see a, a white chalk line and a light bulb over my head. And I sort of slow down and I hear this voice out in the darkness like, hey, you. Yeah. You in the race? Yeah. You're done. No Mike Riley. No, no Mike band, Riley. No cheerleaders. One guy doing one-hour push-ups in the park. And that was it. And me. But I knew when I left that finish line that this had been something special. It, I, it changed me. I knew right then that if I could feel so just ecstatic about finishing this thing, that this thing was going to catch on. And it became my mission to spread the, the word about this silly event and this silly sport. And I came back and uh, I, I continued school teaching school, but I also became the LA editor for a magazine called Running News and convinced Mike Plant, who was the editor, to change it to Running and Triathlon News based on the idiots 
who were in the sport, who were the 108 of us who did this event. This event, this sport's going to be huge. It was 108 of us doing the race. But there was just something you could feel that this thing was, and think about it. The first triathlon ever was in 1974. By 1996, we'd been accepted in the Olympics. And by 2000, we were in Olympic Games. And that's that's unbelievable. Yeah. And it's, I, I mean, I, I totally get it because the thing that motivated you, that finish line is the same thing that motivates people now, 40, what, 42 years later. I mean, it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. It uh, doesn't, when people ask about how the sport is different, obviously it's different with technology, et cetera. But when you stand at that finish line and you see the raw motion of yeah. people coming across that line and what it means to them and how it changes them, that that does that has not changed. That that's still there. And it doesn't right. matter if you're you know, like you, you've been doing this forever. You have that same feeling when you come across the finish line, if it's you know, if it's your first Ironman or if it's your 50th. All right, right. And I'm curious, you know, I've heard you speak about how uh, the sport went from its humble beginnings through the uh, you know, the the article that you've referenced now, the Sports Illustrated article, and of course ABC's coverage with Julie Moss. Yep. And you were in it at the time. Did you have a, I mean, looking back, everybody obviously appreciates how Julie Moss impacted the sport, but at the time, was there a moment when you really sort of said, oh, it's the inflection point is right now. Like it is really about to take off. You know, things really happened quickly because I remember running out in Penasquitas Canyon because I was in that race. And until later, when I talked to Valerie Silk about everything that happened and Valerie Silk was the race director, I mean, you kept thinking, how did Kathleen pass her and not see her? I don't get how you how that happens. Well, when you saw it on TV, who the hell looks on the ground for the person they're trying to catch? So I, I get it. But back then, we, we were like, we all had heard the hubbub, but there was no video until the show came out. Nobody really knew what the hell happened. And what people don't realize is, you know, Valerie Silk had, she was married to this guy, Hank, who was a race director. And so they were sort of co, she was working with Hank a little bit, but she thought it was the stupidest thing in the world that their health club, Nautilus health clubs, that they were even involved with this silly event. She's like 15 people. What a waste of our time. Right. So, but what she loved to do was organize. And when she and Hank split and she took over the event, she moved the event to the big Island and she's an organizer and she's this mother hen I, all throughout the 80s, you would get birthday cards from Valerie thanking you for supporting the Ironman, right? That, that's what built the sport. But in that year, in 82, there was a group called Free, Freewheeling Films that came over to, to shoot the Ironman. And when they called Valerie about, hey, we'd like to shoot the Ironman, she was like, well, I have an agreement with ABC that they're exclusive to cover the Ironman. And they were like, oh, well, they won't mind. We're good friends. She said, oh, okay. Well, they did mine. And throughout the day, you know, this freewheeling films group with Bruce Dern was one of the classic sound bites of all time, talking about the Ironman and how that's last hour in the lava fields, you know, at 110 degrees, we'll find out who the hell our Ironman really is. It's one of the best little mini docs. It's about 20 minutes ever. But ABC was pissed. They're like, what? These guys are in our way all day long. So while Julie was crawling to the finish line, Valerie Silk was in the ABC trailer getting screamed at by the producer of the show saying, Valerie, you have violated your contract. You allowed this other group to come here. We will never be back. The Ironman will never be 
on ABC, Why World of Sports, again. And when she left the trip, and meanwhile, his, his assistants, the producers kept coming in, boss, you need to come see this. This is pretty amazing. And he didn't see it, and Valerie didn't see it. And when she left the trailer and heard that, you know, Julie was in medical and would like to see her, and she walked over to see Julie, and Julie was like, Valerie, you know, I'm so sorry. Can I come back next year? I'd like to do the race again and hopefully I can win. And, and Valerie was like, sure, you can come back. But in her mind, it was, we're done. This event will never happen again. We'll never get ABC again. They, we've, we've, we've burnt that bridge by allowing this other group in. So then when ABC realized what the hell they had and how amazing that footage was, they moved the production up a month. And they, you know, because this is on beta tape. These are, this is just, they, they didn't edit that quickly. And then when it aired on Wide World of Sports, back then, ABC Wide World of Sports would do three vignettes. They would do roller derby. They do ice dancing. They do the Ironman triathlon. So as Julie is crawling to the finish line, and again, remember, 22-year-old co-ed with freckles. Not 1980, Dave Scott needing to cool down after going 140.6 miles. Not John Howard in 1981, the cyclist of the 70s and a three-time Pan American Games gold medalist, a three-time uh, three Olympian and Pan American Games gold medalist. The people, the viewers at home couldn't relate to these guys. Somebody in Pittsburgh seeing Dave Scott needing to cool down after a race is going, who, who are these people? They're watching because of the palm trees and it's February and you're, you're in, you're in uh, Pittsburgh or Cleveland. Well, now you got this 22-year-old co-ed and another 22-year-old co-ed named Kathleen and Julie could be your daughter. She could be your girlfriend. She could be your sister. You can relate to her and you're seeing her, I call it the original reality TV, raw and unfiltered, this woman who had crapped herself and is crawling on all fours with a smile on her face, collapsing on the finish line, being taken off on a stretcher and people watching at home are like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. This is ridiculous. This is stupid. What is it about that finish line that's so important that this woman will crawl to get there? And how do I get some of that in my life? That was our moment, right? And that's why that moment still lives on. And that led to... The following weekend, oh, so after the after this airs, and they go right from this, right from her on a stretcher with a smile on her face, they go to cliff diving or they go to roller derby. So people don't know if Julie Moss is dead or not. So people are calling Wide World of Sports and the phone lines there, the switchboard, which people have no idea what that is, the switchboard's lighting up to the point where they flew Julie and Kathleen back to New York the following weekend after the show aired to assure the American, and they were on with Jim McKay, the Dean of Wild World of Sports, to assure the American public that this sport and this event do not kill people and that they are okay. And that led to Jim Curl and Carl Thomas getting together and going, we've got lightning in a bottle here. And they created the United States Triathlon Series for June of 82. Remember that event was February of 82. It aired like in March. June of 82, creation of the United States Triathlon Series, and they did a second Ironman in October of 82 because of the popularity, and because, and those numbers went from a couple of hundred to four, three, four hundred, right? They basically doubled from the year before, because now in October, 
people from other parts of the world besides Hawaii and California could actually train for this thing. You couldn't really train for it if in February, if you're living back, you know, in Germany or anywhere else. So that moment led to everything else. That was the dominoes. And we all could feel it because all of a sudden, you know, you're doing U.S. United States triathlon series wasn't on a remote island. It was, it was San Diego. It was Chicago. It was San Francisco. It was New York. It was Boston. Big markets understanding this hot new sport. It was Budweiser. It was Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola red jersey. So, it, you know, the sport boom and all of it was because of Julian Kathleen. And, you know, it's an incredible story. And I I, I, I love hearing that it, you guys knew at the time because that really is fascinating to me because I, before I came to the sport, I knew about Julie. I had seen that. And uh, when I first was introduced to the sport of triathlon, my the first words out of my mouth was, you know, I don't want to do that race in Hawaii because I just had seen, that's all I knew. Right. But the second I got into it, the second I got into triathlon, the first race I finished, all of a sudden it, the allure of that finish line in Hawaii just starts to call and beckon. And I am incredibly right. fortunate to have been able to do it once. I'm going back next year. So oh, um, yeah, I'm very, very excited. And uh, uh, yeah, it's unlike anything, uh, unlike anything, any that, that you can do anywhere or any, and, and I've done now seven Ironmans and they're all special. They're all fantastic. But that finish line in Hawaii really is um, really, really spectacular. When you so. think about comparing it to another sport, if you're, if you're a tennis player, you can't go hang out with Roger Federer at Wimbledon, right? You can't compete oh, with him. You can't go hang out with Tiger Woods at the masters, but Jan Frodeno and you are doing the same course on the same day at the same time. He's going a little faster, but at the same time, if you run into him or Lionel Sanders, whoever afterwards, you can compare notes. That's why I love this bond between our age groupers and our pros, because Every pro was an age group and became a pro. We're, we're going to go a little out of order here because I definitely wanted to get to that a little bit later on. But as I was telling you before we started recording, I had the great fortune of running into Lionel just after. Uh, so we're recording this in early December, and uh, this probably won't air until the new year. But we're recording this in early December just after I competed at the Indian Wells uh, 70.3, where Lionel won the race. And I had the good fortune of being able to chat with him briefly after the awards because Lionel... Uh, I, I have felt this way for a long time. He is so special as an individual, uh, as a human being, because uh, his story is so compelling, his story of coming from addiction to the sport and his redemption and really saving his life. Uh, but also because of who he is as an individual, he made himself available after the awards. He stood there for over an hour to speak to every single person who wanted to speak to him and have a selfie with him. And, and he greeted every single athlete exactly the same way. Every athlete would walk up to him and he started with, how is your day? How is your race out there? Yep. And I, you know, I overheard an athlete tell him that, you know, I had a panic attack in the cold water and immediately Lionel launched into a story about how he once had a panic attack in a race. And he just made this athlete feel so fantastic. And, and he is just such a remarkable person. And I was talking to um, his wife after, and Aaron, yeah. I was just telling her how much I appreciate that Lionel is in our sport. He is emblematic 
of, like you said, of how the pros are in our sport. They're very approachable. I had the good fortune of running into Lucy Charles Barkley at St. George and, you know, went all fanboy on her. I was like, uh, I'm a 54 year old man. Uh, and Lucy, I would love to have a picture with you. And she immediately was like, absolutely. And just, you know, was gracious. And they're just so uh, approachable and so human and so uh, wonderful in that way. And I agree with you. It's because we're all on the same course. They were all age groupers before. Yep. And it really is special. Well, uh, you think you think about both. You think about Lionel. And the, when I think about Lionel, I think about mom and dad. Because this is a guy who did go down that slippery slope and, you know, snorted his collegiate money, you know, money for college and, and probably disappointed his parents so many different times. So imagine you, you know, here's a kid who's who's used up a lot of your money over the years, and he goes, Hey, I want to go to Louisville and do an Ironman. And I need to be able to get there. I need a kit, I need entry fee. I need, you know, a lot of parents would have given up at that point because it wasn't like he was 17, 18 years old. And they never did. They always believed in their son. And you know, and I to a certain and Lionel knows that interviewing. At Boston Marathon one year, Lionel Ant was running and his mom was running. And Lionel, and we did an interview together with mom and with Lionel. And you could, he was so caring for his mom. You just, I don't know, there's just a very, very special bond there that all of us have with Lionel. All of us feel like we've been part of his journey. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a huge supporter of his and I wish, and I mean, He's so, anyways, I could talk about him. I'm not going to keep going. We'll talk about him another time, but I do want to ask you about something else that's very near and dear to your heart. And that's the Challenge Athlete Foundation. Uh, I have had the uh, pleasure of speaking to uh, athletes who, uh, on this podcast, who race, who benefit from that foundation. And I'd love to hear what the genesis was for that and uh, how it has been such a huge passion and such a great, your name was mentioned actually at Indian Wells when they gave the uh, award to the challenged athlete who won, he made special mention of you uh, and thanked you for your support. Yeah. So tell us about the challenged athlete foundation. Michael has dwarfism and is, I think the second person with dwarfism to finish a 70.3. And he's just a very, very special young man who I see at the races every week. We take selfies every week at the races. He's like me. Any race that's out there, he wants to do. And he told me his goal is to do an Ironman one day. And he, uh, we got together just the day before he left to make sure we got new kits for him. And he's, yeah, my, he's special. And all of our athletes are amazing. Uh, we're, we're actually working on a film right now on a quadruple amputee baseball player from Indiana who's uh, made his high school baseball team. He's missing both hands and both legs, one below the knee, one above the knee. And made his high school baseball team. And the film is called Just Watch Me. We're going to film festivals this winter and it'll come out next spring. The producer, Eric Cocker, has been covering this kid for seven years, but with Challenge Athletes Foundation. So going back to a guy named Jim McLaren, who was in 1985, was a 300 pound offensive lineman for Yale. And he was taking acting classes in New York City. Uh, and he was riding his motorcycle to class one day when he got hit by a bus thrown 90 feet in the air, dead on arrival, lived, lost his lower left leg. And back then, prosthetics were nothing like they are now. We're talking Captain Hook. And this guy ran a 316 marathon on that wooden you know, piece of crap. 
And then he went to Kona where I met him and he went 1042 with a freaking you know wooden prosthetic. So this guy is changing the world. Everybody knows who he is. He's the you know amputee athlete who's changing the world. Then eight years later, he's racing in Mission Viejo here in California. A van goes through a close intersection, hits the back of his bike, propels him headfirst into a pole. A guy who's an amputee becomes a quadriplegic. And at that point, myself and two close friends, Jeffrey Essekow, who actually worked for a company called the Tinley Company, and Rick Kozlowski, who put on all the races in San Diego, got together and we decided we wanted to put on a little triathlon as a fundraiser for Jimmy. I had covered a lot of wheelchair athletes through Challenge Athletes, through um, Competitor Magazine. And the one thing when I'd interview guys who were 30 years old, what's the worst part about being your new lot in life? You're paralyzed. What, how, how are you handling it? It says, well, the worst thing is that mom and dad are back in my life. I'm 30 years old. I don't have, I'm not in an independent adult anymore. And I was an independent adult. I need people to carry me around and, 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 and be there for me. So the goal was to raise 25,000 by Jimmy a van with hand controls so that he'd have independence. That was it. So we put on a little triathlon. We didn't raise 25. We raised 49,000. Thought our job is done. Move on. Well, three amputee women who raced as a relay came to us and said, it's great what you did for Jimmy. Did you know that your health insurance, if you get injured, will cover a walking around leg or an everyday wheelchair? Nothing to do with sport is covered because they consider sport a luxury item. Sport's not a luxury item. It's a huge part of who we are and what we do. So that's when we got our 5013C and decided if anybody needed a piece of equipment, training or travel to stay in the game of life through sport, that CAF would be there. It's been 28 years. We've raised $134 million. We've sent out over 35,000 grants. We, during COVID, we sent out 3,038 grants, totaling $5.1 million. And the cool part is uh, we've sent out grants to athletes in 73 countries, all 50 states in Puerto Rico, and in 105 different sports. Everything from paratriathlon to, uh, to quad rugby, to beep baseball, which is baseball for the blind, to sled hockey. You name the sport. We had actually the latest um, in the Paralympics, we had 128 athletes representing CAF at the Paralympics in Tokyo. And I, we in the medal count, we would have been sixth if we were a country. So that was that was very cool. Seeing our kids, some of these kids were six, seven, eight years old, and now they're 18 and went to their first Paralympics. And some of them, like Rudy Garcia Tolson, who's a double above the amputee. We've been working with Rudy since he's seven, eight years old, and he just went to his fifth Paralympics, and he's 30, I think he just turned 33. So just, just seeing uh, our athletes become comfortable in their own skin, to feel powerful. That, that's When we first started CAF, I, I don't know if you remember this, but back in those days, it was charity was about violin music, commercials late at night with Sally Struthers, talking about how making your athletes look sympathetic and, and to me sort of pathetic and, or you're the people who are needy. And in my, in our situation, I wanted just the opposite of that. And so Tim Mantuani, this amazing photographer, we collaborated and it was like, we want our athletes to look strong and powerful. So the first photos we took of Rudy, he's, these are hero shots. Shot from down low, you see the two prosthetic legs, his arms are, hands are on his hips, sort of looking right out the, at you going, 
Yeah, what are you looking at? You give me a piece of equipment, I'll kick your ass. And that was the attitude that I wanted. And that's the attitude that I think we've we've provided all these years. Well, you know, and that is something that comes up over and over when I've spoken with athletes who are facing some kind of physical challenge when they compete is they do not want to be seen as overcoming something. They want to be seen as doing the same as everybody else with just, you know, they need a piece of equipment, a little bit different. Well, yeah, that was really what happened with, uh, with wheelchair athletes. Cause back even in 93, couldn't get wheelchair athletes into Ironman. Right. It was like, uh, the, the feeling was if you let somebody rather than swim, bike, run, if they swim, use a hand cycle and then use a racing chair, the mentality was, well, if you do that, then someone's going to say, I don't swim and I want to use a windsurfer. I want to use a paddleboard. And I was like, well, no, you just write rules, you know, hand cycle, wheelchair. You can't use a hand cycle and then run. You can't, you can't ride a regular, but you can't ride a bike and then use a racing chair. You know, you just have to come up with real rules and regulations. And then John Franks, came and tried to make the cutoff times in 94. He missed the bike cutoff. And then in 95 and 96, a guy named John McLean from uh, Australia missed both missed the bike cutoff time both times. But in 97, he made all the cutoff times. And the cool part was, you know, this, the following year, after he made all the cutoff times, Carlos Maleta, Navy SEAL, who was shot in the back in Panama, Carlos went 10.55 which would have won the first two Ironmans overall, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of changed the game from, I don't think they can make the finish line, finish to how fast can they go? And can David Bailey beat Carlos Maleda? You know, the Navy SEAL against the motocross world champion, both of them paralyzed, both of them athletes, and the chair disappeared. It was two athletes who wanted to kick the other guy's ass, and the chair became invisible. And that that's what I loved. It, it became athletes against other athletes period yeah and that that's really what it should be and it's a remarkable remarkable thing that you and uh, your partners have done and uh, i know that uh, there are so many who are indebted to you um we could go on and on and on here uh so i want to finish with uh, a question here and that that is about breakfast with bob um how did that begin and uh yeah why don't we start there how did it begin (laughs) Well, you know, I, it, it goes back to in, in starting in 1990. Well, I started the competitor in 87. And we started competitor in 87. And then, you know, again, we weren't just growing our magazine. We were growing an industry. So when I went to a local sports radio station in 1990, the goal was, listen, on sports radio, you hear Magic Johnson, you hear Larry Bird, you, you hear Mike Trout, you hear all these guys. Well, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, Paul Nibby Frazier, they are world-class athletes and they should have a showcase on a sports radio station. So I did a time buy for competitor radio that started in 1990. And basically until a year ago, we every Sunday night from 1990 to 2020, we had a two-hour time slot where we showcased the greatest endurance athletes on the planet. And it was a great way. So people who would be listening to mainstream sports stuff, then all of a sudden were exposed to the sport of triathlon. And I just love the interviewing. I love the long form interviews and being able to, to showcase Lance, you know, in his early days when he was, you know, when we started covering him when he was 15 years old and 
were there when, you know, we were, we were very tight when he, when he was diagnosed with cancer and we talked about, he, he didn't think he'd ever be able to ride again, but he was just going to enjoy every day that he had left because we didn't know if he was going to live or not. So that led to, you know, doing long form interviews. I would do those in Kona on the radio and I would tape them and then play them from Kona on the Sunday night radio show. And then we started uh, when competitive, we became competitor group and we owned triathlete magazine and all the rock and roll marathons with, with that, we launched in, I think like 2011, 2012, we launched breakfast with Bob from Huggos and eventually Huggos on the rocks. And what I love about it is, you know, we, we interviewed Daniela Reef when she first came to the Island. And while we're interviewing her, she's like, so is this street here? Is this where we run? Right. <laughs> we drive, right? She's like, yeah, Danielle, you'll be, you'll be running along there. You know, and Sebastian Keenley before he won his first title and Jan Ferdano and Patrick Lange and, and Lucy Charles, when Lucy Charles came on the show and I, I was like, so give me an idea what you swim in a typical week. And she said, Oh, hundred thousand yards. And I was just like, wait, what? I just, the learning meeting these athletes and learning about them and having Chrissy Wellington in, in 2011, when she just had this, the race of her life, knowing her body was compromised and beating Marinda Carfrey by two minutes, just all those amazing moments. And, and I've always felt our athletes don't get the recognition they deserve. So one of the things we started back in 2016 or so is we we did a deal with Four Seasons Resort, Four Seasons Walleye. And what Four Seasons does is the top three men and women are picked up in limos and brought out to Four Seasons. We shoot in a $17,000 a night villa. Uh, we shoot the interviews there on Sunday morning. They bring their families out for a full-on, you know, full-on catered breakfast for them and their families, which is what they deserve. And then when the first place person comes on, your overall champion, their chef, their bakers over there at Four Seasons do a unbelievable cake uh, uh, presentation for the overall champion. So the, the year that Daniela was stung by a jellyfish, this presentation that she got from their bakers had a jellyfish incorporated into it. Everything on it was edible. It was so cool. It was one of those things that, I just love the fact that the athletes are treated as celebrities because that's what they deserve and that's what they've earned. And, you know, the TO a couple of years ago was like, you know, Hey, I don't want to fall out of the top three. I want to go to four seasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, they deserve it. And you're so right. Uh, it, you know, Hawaii is the big show for them. And so they, they, if they're going to get it, they might as well get it there. And they definitely deserve it. Absolutely. Uh, Bob Babbitt, I feel like a celebrity having had the chance to talk with you today. And I'm so grateful for you taking this much time to, to share all of these fantastic memories and insights about our sport. Um, I, I definitely hope uh, to be able to, to chat with you again because there are many questions questions I didn't even get to. And I have some ideas about how we might be able to do that. So thank you again for uh, taking so much time and being so gracious uh, and for joining me today on the Tri Dark Podcast. Yeah, Jeff, thank you very much. And you know, it's it's always good to chat about the old stuff because you know what? Uh, our history is very rich. And I look around this room here 
And I'm looking at a, a portrait of Dave Scott that sort of combines both worlds. One of our athletes who's a quadriplegic painted this amazing portrait of Dave Scott that I'm staring at right now. And it's, you know, it's sort of the challenged athlete and our one of our legends of our sport. So I, I love our sport. I love our athletes. And, you know, anything we can do to help grow our sport and keep getting new people in, because once they're there, you know, once you put that number on, we got you. You're there for life. You will, you will be with us forever. Yep. No, no truer words for said. Thank you, brother. And that's it for another episode. The Tridoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesch. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous shows at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, remember 1121. Train hard, train healthy.